welcome to the official SciFox podcast, where we get to know more about our company, culture, and employees. This is episode three, and I am joined here with Mike and Jordan Cobb. Hello, guys. So I guess today we're going to talk a little bit about Jordan's background, where you're from, what brought you to SciFox. So if you just want to give us like a little, little bit like couple minutes background story of where you grew up and what makes Jordan Jordan. Sure. I grew up in Austin, Texas. As a kid, spent a lot of time outside, rode horses for a long time, so spent a lot of time outside. Always really enjoyed exploring nature. I think that lent itself to me really enjoying science in school. Went to Stanford studying bioengineering, got sent home for covid I had already started working at a startup uh, in California, working on an mRNA therapeutic to extend telomeres. Really enjoyed being in a team, I think it was of six at that time, and getting to learn a lot more rapidly than I thought I would in more of a like big corporation. Uh, so I decided to try to work at startups during my year off. Worked a bit at a a nanotech anti-counterfeiting startup, both remotely and in person, and decided I wanted to do something closer to bioengineering. Uh, So I found SciFox through the YC uh, network, I guess, because I had already been at a YC company in California. Uh, And it seemed like a really awesome opportunity to work on diagnostics and start to generate a lot of the data that's going to be really exciting and transformative in bioengineering. There's an interesting, yeah, and it, it, the amount of data we're able to generate is so much greater than before. There's a lot less of a burden on the scientists to have an intuition or understanding before they seek out the data. A lot of it can be more exploratory. And I think that's really interesting in fields like aging where a lot of it is actually a pretty big mystery. Nice. Very cool. I um, I do remember when we were interviewing and looking for interns, and I, I distinctly remember um, Mike having the interview with you, and when he came out, he's like, she's good. We want her. Like, we definitely, he was like 100% sure that we wanted you on the team. So can you tell me, Mike, what made you so sure that you wanted Jordan on our team? So I did a lot of interviews during that quarter and um, basically we have so little kind of slack in the timeline and everything that we're doing. We basically need very independent people. And so that was my top priority. It's just getting people that will, if you just forget about them for a week, for example, they'll just produce something, you know, a week later you show up and they've, they've made a lot of progress. So that, that was the main filter. She didn't really have 100% relevant experience, but that's not that important for an internship. I just thought it was, I was very impressed that she had done a lot of things independently. And yeah, we do this design challenge, right, for all the interns and she just produced, you know, A plus work in that. So that it was a very, it's pretty binary usually with the internship uh, interviews because it's just obvious if it'll be, if it'll be a fit. Right, right. Yeah. So when you got the, basically the the go that you were going to come here? I mean, was it like, were you already expecting to have to travel or was it kind of like a scramble to get out here? Uh, I remember being really excited and I'm sure you remember me emailing you a bunch of times during the week. Do you know yet? Do you know yet? Uh, I was pretty excited. I had been, I'd been traveling a lot. I'd been in California 
back in Texas, spent a little time in Utah, and then came back and was working in a part of Texas, which is not my favorite. Mm. Um, it was good because I was two hours from home, so I was able to drive a lot. But I was excited to come to Cambridge. I had thought about going to school on the East Coast and being able to live somewhere. Different weather, different style of living, a lot more like compact, I guess. And I had, yeah, thought about being in Cambridge for school for a while. So I was actually really, really excited to get to come and live in Cambridge or experience Boston, I guess. So I was, I was pretty ready to go. Yeah. So originally, you know, when we hired you, it was going to be 50% doing bench work and kind of participating in the mainstream research and development and 50% working on aging as it relates to like quantified self. So looking at how we could apply our diagnostics at-home diagnostics platform to aging research and also just giving people a feedback loop for all kinds of like health interventions they're trying. So we're on hour 48 or whatever now of this fast. Uh, maybe you can tell, tell us about, first about what did you find in your research? Like just super briefly, we'll talk about it more in detail. And then something about calorie restriction and then how's it actually going in reality? Yeah, so... There's a lot of research done on uh, intermittent fasting, calorie restriction as it relates to lifespan extension. And in yeast and worms and mice, calorie restriction or fasting has probably been the most reliable thing for extending the lifespan. They've gotten up to some pretty crazy numbers in smaller model organisms. And in general, people have taken up intermittent fasting, I think, is a really big trend lately as a, uh, in addition to the keto diet to induce ketogenesis, increase their insulin sensitivity, try to modify the fat profile of their body fairly successfully. I know Mike has been doing more fasting than I have. I haven't done an official fast like this, uh, and I'm, I'm finding it a bit difficult, but thankfully I, I am... I am happy that I am now in ketosis. That gave me a little boost, a little motivation to keep going. But definitely feeling some mental fog, very tired. So for some context, we're basically we're testing our ketone levels, which is but not that frequently. And it's kind of more like a background thing, but in urine. But more importantly, we're collecting blood samples twice a day. So every morning and every, every evening it's five of us in the company doing it together. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've done a couple of fasts and I kind of realized that it would be, it would be a lot of fun to do it as a group. It's pretty interesting to see people's reactions to not eating for a couple of days. Uh, it's been interesting so far. We'll see what the third day is like. So yeah, we're going to, we're going to send off our samples to a research lab that we're, uh, collaborating with, and they're going to do some very multiplexed, uh, tests on them. And we'll, actually get some interesting data, hopefully, and see how all kinds of biomarkers in our blood have varied over the course of the fast, uh, both with like circadian rhythm and also just with, you know, food deprivation. But yeah, it's just kind of funny. We're getting into the phase of the fast where people are visibly fasting. You can really see it on mm -hmm. their face. <laughs> yeah, the, the Snyder Lab is a really cool lab, and they definitely take more of that uh, data-driven approach that's enabled by our ability to collect a lot of diverse data. They don't necessarily have a lot of theory going in. They're taking basically everything, transcriptomics, metabolomics, genomics, epigenomics, and then they 
let the data speak a lot more, which is a really cool approach for aging. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited to see, see what the results are. Oh, Sorry, good. Go well, no, I was going to ask. So in your research, I mean, it's very interesting. But in your research, have you found that these things relate to maybe how we're hardwired as humans in terms of the hunter-gatherer, you know, going days without eating? Um, are our bodies just physiologically made up to perform better in that type of scenario? So this is something we're discussing a little bit this morning. I think fasting in general, there's a lot of and paleo. These are all diets that are trying to get back at like where we evolved for the majority of time was as a hunter-gatherer. But um, we were discussing maybe this morning that it affects men and women differently because for men in this situation, when you haven't had calories for 48 hours, they're probably getting a metabolic boost, getting a boost in focus. This is, this is by the way, Jordan's theory. She's kind of oh. saying we, but okay. this, is yes. this, is, this is my theory. Clear. This is my theory. Okay. That men are getting a metabolic boost, probably a boost in focus. Whereas women, their bodies without calories are probably in a conservation of energy, like shut down state more so. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting the difference between just hearing about the research or something or even reading the, the papers with like the, out, the outcomes of the studies and just the on-the-ground experience of, of uh, fasting is, for me, definitely very interesting. What I think is going to be really interesting in our data is that we, there aren't a lot of studies looking at every 12 hours what the changes are throughout the fast. Most studies that I've seen that do a time course will do it, you know, once a day and they're probably fasting for longer periods of time. So it's interesting to see like what's the optimal time to get the results you desire because in these studies where they're doing multiple days, they find, oh, you know, your triglycerides stop dropping after right. a certain number of days. So we'll all probably be able to tune our fasting periods to our goals and also having experienced maybe not so great side effects of right so i saw the um that you guys both did the ketone test right so why do you think even though you've been both fasting for the same amount of time why do you think they were so vastly different and can you say can you explain a little bit about how those tests work and what it shows and how you've interpreted the data so the urine strips for ketosis are measuring acetoacetate which is the first ketone your body produces. It's usually used as a proxy for BHB, which is the most energy efficient and abundant ketone, but that can only be measured in blood. I had a very high readout on the strip. I hadn't done it until this morning, which was probably you know 40 hours or so into the fast. Um, and I was at, I think, 160 milligrams for deciliter. Is that what yeah, it reads out in? Yeah. I mean, those tests are not that quantitative, but it's like a factor. I think my strip was a factor of 10 less ketones. And then so was Diedrich's also. Mm. So it's pretty, you're, you definitely blew past everybody. on the. But is that what kind of led you to believe that men and women's bodies might be reacting differently or was it something mm. else? I mean, you could imagine... You could imagine that the ketone response is more related to like whatever your prior metabolic condition was like before the fast or maybe how you, yeah, it's hard to say. I think we're, we actually don't know that much about The last this, thing you ate right? before you started uh, your we're, fast? We're more, 
yeah, we've been looking more at which biomarkers to test and so on and not so, I don't know, maybe Jordan knows this on a more granular level. I certainly don't. No, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. It has something to do with like how fast you're depleting your glycogen reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I don't know too much about it. I know that your body usually uh, gets about like 5% of its or less of its energy from ketones. And after a three day fast, that increases seven or eight fold. Yeah, but there's, there's like a rate limit at which your liver can produce sugar. So like glucose. Mm. So basically that that's I think that's what causes it. So it's at some point you just can't produce as much glucose as you need. So it's you start using this backup mechanism. But yeah, why it would be different across people, we don't know. Yeah. The the difference between the gender difference was more related to the other symptoms. Like the the ketone but maybe the ketone levels are related to the symptoms. Right. It's hard to say, right? Like there's like people report something called like the keto flu when they first start a keto diet. So they just feel bad for mm-hmm. a while. So I don't know. It's, it's, it'll be interesting to see uh, what the blood tests show. So I know it's not directly related to the science part of it, but I remember from when I've fasted, the psychological effects that it had on me from the beginning throughout, you know, it, it, it changed over time. And even to the point where I was having crazy dreams. So for both of you guys, have you experienced, like, what has your psychological experience been so far? I've been surprised how much I think about food. I guess it shouldn't be that surprising from an evolutionary perspective, right. because right after water, you're probably looking for food. And just how I use food and meals to break up my day, mm. or as rewards for like getting through chunks of work. And how social it is, right? Like, every social encounter really is surrounded by food it's it's centered around food gathering with your family and your friends and like you said breaking up your work day there's a lot of free time you suddenly have a lot of free time right. compared to the day prior which is interesting it's definitely at least for me my it generally mutes all of my emotions so all like all emotions that i feel are like uh yeah factor of three less intense or something like that right you know, I'm pretty sure like old school, you know, treatments like psychiatric treatment included just, okay, we're just not going to feed this person yes. for a while. Yes. <laughs> it's, it definitely makes you calm down just on a physical level, which is interesting. Uh, no but, crazy dreams though? Um, not yet. We'll yeah. see tomorrow night. I mean, the last couple of fasts I've done, I'm trying to remember if I had interesting dreams. I can't remember. How about yeah. focus wise? For me, it's completely fine. It might be... Sharper? Uh, yeah, the first day was definitely not sharper, but today, it really, I mean, it seems to depend more on how much caffeine I'm having than I see. food, honestly. Yeah. It, I, I don't know, maybe a little bit sharper. I was pretty surprised yesterday, even though I wasn't that far into the fast and I've definitely not eaten, just getting caught up in work. I had really hard t- time focusing yesterday. Mm. Today, this morning, I felt... Didn't you pipette something at like 500 times yeah. concentration or something? Yeah, I have like a stock to block the nanoparticles and prevent them from binding places they shouldn't. Right. And instead of diluting my stock in that adding it, I just dropped the oh. whole thing <laughs> the whole thing in there. And that's when I knew mm-hmm. <laughs> the fast would be in. But today, I feel, I felt very nauseous when I woke up. I feel a little bit better after having more caffeine and electrolytes. Yeah, there's a lot of, you can really go down the dreaded black hole of fasting. Like the r slash fasting thing is very funny. 
it's it's all people doing like it makes a three-day fast feel like nothing mm. it's like oh you're this that's not even a fast you know there's everybody that's posting on there is doing like a 40-day fast or whatever 10-day wow. fast seven-day fast like three day is not even that at least from the people posting but of course it's like biased towards the people that are the most into it but it's just funny like i tried reading a little bit of r slash fasting and it's it's almost like I'm not even sure if what they're saying is applicable to me because they're doing these crazy uh, like extended fasts. Right. Um, I wonder how much of that is 200 calorie a day fasting. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I because don't know. that's that's a lot more like the safety of that is is yeah. pretty well established. But they, have very, they have very good advice about the electrolytes. Like they have a whole page on r slash fasting about exactly how much electrolytes you need and everything. And that's that's actually very applicable regardless of how long you're doing it. But, yeah. So what's been the reaction of people who you've told? You're fasting. My boyfriend was quite worried about me. Yeah. Because I don't have a lot of, uh, I guess, excess reserves. (laughs) reserves. Yeah, some people are excited, think it's interesting. Yeah, I had my, you know, my wife's reaction is exactly the opposite to, to, you know, your significant others. She's like very excited. Uh, Like, oh, this is amazing, you know, because obviously she, she would like to see me skinnier right so, so she's she's excited uh it's like money in the bank for her she's got you know? vested interest uh, in yeah exactly <laughs> that's funny did jane fast with you and you did it before no because she she tried fasting a little bit but chi- chinese people to them fasting is like complete anathema like you would never do that it's considered like you're supposed to eat your meals russian people actually also have this philosophy you're supposed to eat your meals at the same like time window every day and super regularly that's considered very healthy. So the idea that you would just not eat at all, I mean, there might be some parts of Chinese, I don't know, like Buddhism or something where they fast, but the mainstream health culture is actually to eat very regularly. So uh, it's just kind of, it's kind of funny. I mean, like her, her mom is living with us right now for a month and it like uh, to help take care of the kid. And it's, uh, I'm sure she's bewildered. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, tell us more about, so you were injecting rats with mRNA therapies. Yes. Okay, so more detail. Okay, yeah. So the um, YC company I was working at previously is called Rejuvenation Technologies. Uh, The co-founders were postdocs at Stanford. One of them synthesized the reverse transcript for um, one of the enzymatic components of telomerase. So we were trying to extend the telomeres in mice and see the effect initially on um, the liver. So in a lot of uh, hepatic conditions like cirrhosis, alcoholic hepatitis, what happens is that the there's a lot of damage. It takes a big toll on the proliferative capacity of that organ. And eventually you start getting scar tissue that grows back and is essentially dysfunctional tissue. So the idea was if we can extend the telomeres, extend the proliferative capacity, you aren't going to see this decline later in life, maybe due to just aging, maybe due to abuse of alcohol. So yeah, so I was in charge, or not in charge, but my, my project was to sort of optimize the delivery vehicle. So most mRNA therapeutics are in a lipid nanoparticle. Um, they usually have some common components. So PEG, for example... Um, which helps it travel through the bloodstream. Is it, let's talk about this because I actually don't know how this works. So you have a like a microfluidic cell where you make these. Yeah. So is it is it too? Li- are you putting the lipids in 
pure or are they dissolved already in something? Yeah, so you generally have the uh, RNA in an aqueous medium and then uh, a non-aqueous component, which is usually the lipids dissolved in like ethanol, for example. Mm -hmm. And then you have, there are like chips on the market that will mix them Oh, sorry. Yeah, the the basically microfluidic chips that will rapidly mix them. And just due to the hydrophilic and hydrophobic interactions, the lipids will essentially encapsulate the mRNA. How do you control the quantity of mRNA in one lipid particle? Is it like concentration dependent? Yeah, for the most part, it's changing the ratio of the like aqueous and non-aqueous component. It's not super well controlled. How you can test for it is basically getting fluorescently tagged mm. RNA and you measure it, you know, before sense. and after lysing the vehicle. Um, and the cool way that we tested it, which is pretty common in the uh, mRNA LNP space, is to deliver instead of the mRNA transcript that you're trying to deliver. So in our case, it was telomerase. In the case of like mRNA vaccines, it's a spike protein transcript. You keep the same vehicle and you replace that transcript with uh, firefly luciferase, which is an enzyme that will create bioluminescence after you inject luciferin. And you can image the, my- the mouse and get sort of a rough picture of where the mRNA transcript is being expressed as luciferase. In general, like the field hasn't really mastered delivering anywhere but the liver. That's the only place there are FDA-approved drugs. So so basically, you were making these lipid nanoparticles and QCing them and then injecting them into rats. That's like the process. And then checking the rats for, would you cut up the rats and check their fluorescence or you can image them? So generally we would keep the rats or keep them, I mean, they're mice, uh, keep the mice alive. So just inject them and you can go through this procedure multiple times without um, getting too many toxic effects. But how do you image them? Oh, so you uh, you knock them out and you tape them down on the <laughs> on a platform in the BLI machine, and then you inject them, and you can sort of see their body plan light oh, really? up in different That's places. Huh. Wow, it's an interesting process. Do but you, are you uh, good at doing the thing where you put your finger on the like on their tail and another finger on their throat, or like how are you injecting them? Well, so they're already knocked out once you... Oh, uh, you do the injections when they're knocked out. Okay. Yeah, so it's... it's so it's not that bad. It's right before okay. you start imaging them, basically. My mom was really good. So she's a biologist and she was very good at uh, in Soviet Russia at doing these injections to, to rats where you have to hold them. I've seen her do it, actually, because she, she did some experiments. Like, she would, like, keep some mice at home sometimes <laughs> and uh, in, like, a fish tank. But basically, she would, like, grab them in one hand with the finger, like, pinky finger on the tail. Yeah. Point her finger on their throat and then inject them while they were, like, squirming in her hand. Wow. She used to do something. Like, people would... She would do it in trade. She would go to, like, another lab where there's some very difficult to inject mouse. And it's, like, people... Once the mouse is already through some period of treatment or whatever, it's, like, a very important mouse, right? Because they've put a lot of effort into it. They're having trouble injecting it, so she would, like, go do the injection and, and get like some reagent in exchange or something or something. Cause in Russia, wow. everything is in shortage, right? So you, she would probably trade them for like 
you know, in Russia, it could be probably something as simple as glycerol. It could be anything. So she would like trade her artisan injections for stuff. And yeah. do you have this skill as well? No, no, I've never tried. No. I, oh. no, no, no. I, I didn't. I actually could still learn from her. It's an interesting point. Like maybe I should try to try to get it, get it from her. But uh, I, I mean, just watching her, it's, it's pretty, it's like gruesome, you know, it's like a barbaric act. Yeah. Uh, and I, she used to do it to rabbits too. I've never seen that. Wow. But, uh, but yeah, that's like, I mean, it's routine, right? That's definitely above my my skill level. I can do like intraperitoneal and retroorbital behind the eye, but no, I definitely can't like wrestle the the squirming mouse. We we put ours to sleep before injecting them for the most part. What does your typical day look like? Okay. Is there a typical day? <laughs> I think there was more of a typical day when we were doing our biosensing meeting every day at nine thirty. Uh, choosing what to do, we will either have a meeting in the morning or I'll just coordinate with people depending on what experiments they're trying to do that day because usually I have something to make upstream of that. And then otherwise, if I'm not directly helping someone with something, I'll sort of go along my path of optimization, try to plan out as many as experiments as I can get in that day and optimize the amount of information I'm getting for the fewest number of experiments because biology is very time and labor intensive. So you have to be careful. Don't do something too crazy. You're trying to get the most information right. out of the least, least pipetting maybe. Nice, nice. Thanks for listening to part one of our multi-series interview, Speaking with Jordan Cobb, where we explore Jordan's work at SciFox and her research into aging, wellness, and at-home diagnostics. Stick with us as we continue the discussion next time here on the official SciFox podcast.